Okay. Time check. Time check. Okay, we're about ready to get started. We have to finish the entire book today, so. <laughs> I think we can do it. Obadiah is where you want to open up to. And you can title it what you will, but I put the title The Fourth of July for the People of God. Obadiah, um, when you try to read through it, he's got a lot of topics, but really all centers on, on this message of what God has in store for his, his people as a nation and, and where they'll be and where they can plan to celebrate freedom as a people and, and complete liberty. So that's why I went with that title. Let's start with a brief prayer as we open up the word together. Lord, open our eyes to see wonderful things as we turn to the words long written down by Obadiah, your prophet. Amen. Okay, we're just going to start with the first part of verse 1. It says, the vision of Obadiah. Um, like some of the, the minor prophets, we actually don't have much biographical information. Not much is known about the man Obadiah. Uh, not even in his own book. Sometimes you'll find in their own prophecies they include some information about themselves. All we know is the date for Obadiah could be two different ones. Uh, the way that your Bible is arranged is somewhat chronologically. That is chronologically by topic. You've got the law, the prophets, and the writings. And when it comes to the prophets, they're sort of chronological here. And if this is what the compiler that, that put in this order believes, Obadiah should be about the year perhaps uh, 845 B.C. But you could also look at Obadiah, especially as you read towards the end there. You talk about exiles and so forth. So it could also have been a book that was written 586 B.C., which would have been right at the time of the exile of the southern kingdom. So whether you take it as an earlier date or later date, it doesn't change the message. It's still going to be the same. Uh, I, I tend to think it fits the earlier date, but wouldn't argue if, if someone wants to see it as 586 at the exile. All right, so the vision of Obadiah. What makes prophecy of Scripture unique? So it's called a vision here. Maybe your Bible calls it something else. The various ways that God presents it. Okay, yeah, we, we do see sometimes it's by sight. So in this case, he's calling it a vision, though it's the word of the Lord speaks as well. Sometimes the, David says, the word of the Lord was on my tongue. So a prophet actually speaks the word. Sometimes, like we had um, earlier this morning, right? We read God speaking directly to someone like Moses. So yeah, you're right, Bill. At various times, and in many ways, God spoke to his prophets. And what makes it different from any other ancient message? God is speaking. Yeah, God's the author. E even though we have the man, Obadiah, that we're talking about today, he gives credit and says, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. So he's claiming divine inspiration here. And what we see is in perfect line with the rest of Scripture and it also its fulfillment as, as spoken. Okay, and it's not just speculative forecasting about the political climate. It's not just political propaganda, which a lot of ancient texts are. Ancient texts will talk about, our country is great and the other people are bad. 
Obadiah talks almost like that, but then you're going to see it, it goes beyond the scope of nationalism. This is not some propaganda text for the ancient Israelites. And something that you'll see in particular from this message, it's judgment. Peter says the prophets never claimed that they had the prophecy of their own origin. Um, it, it wasn't easy either in 845 or 586 to talk about judgment when your nation is suffering at the hands of others. Right now, Obadiah, as he writes, either they're suffering under the Edomites when they're liberated under um, one of the kings of Israel, or he's writing when they're being crushed by the Babylonians. How is that a time for claiming, you know, that this is my message, God's still in, in, in control, it doesn't look like it. Sometimes the word burden is even used to introduce prophecy, the burden of the prophet. Um, so it wasn't always an easy message either. All right, let's finish verse one. This is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord. An envy was sent to the nations to say, rise, let us go against her for battle. So we got a call to arms. This prophecy is going to center on the nation of Edom. Take a look at your map there in the handout. You can see the Edomites were a neighboring nation, but they just kind of border to the south there, the people of Judah. Is that Iraq today or Iran? <coughs> um, that location. Towards Iraq, yeah. That's what I'm thinking. Or towards Iran, rather, yeah. Yeah, if you're going to compare it to the modern nation. They were actually probably nearby what people today consider near bordering modern Palestine. So if you look at that picture there, you can see Judah across from the Dead Sea, Jerusalem right at the top edge of the Dead Sea. Edom is at the bottom there. So they're often spoken of to the south. We saw Edom when the nation of Israel came out of Egypt and they said, no, you're not allowed to pass through here. We're not going to let you guys just march over our territory. So they're hostile. They always have been hostile. And if you, you know where Edomites come from, it makes sense. Esau. Esau, yeah. So Jacob and Esau, brothers that were in conflict. They did get along at the end. They reconciled a little bit. But Esau is described in Scripture as a godless man. Um, we look in the, the pages of Scripture. It says he sold his inheritance, really despising the promise of the Savior. He sold it away and... Basically, he threatened to kill his brother uh, because of what his brother did with deceiving his father for the blessing at the end of Jacob's life, or Isaac's life. So Jacob and Esau are twins. They're struggling. They basically, for the rest of their history, are in conflict. Yeah. Jacob, I love Esau. I hate him. Right. And yeah, we see that in regards to predestination, that God knew from eternity that Esau would be against him. Yeah, even before they were born. And it's only by grace that Jacob was with God. All right, so let's read on about the Edomites here. Verse 2. See, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. Okay, so it's a judgment against Edom in particular. That's how it starts out. So now we get to see what was the sin, the chief sin of the Edomites. Let's just read uh, verse 3. Read it for that. <coughs> the pride of your hearts has deceived you, you who live in the cliffs of the rocks and make your home on the heights, you who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Thanks. So what was the chief sin of the Edomites? Pride. 
pride, yeah. And they kind of prided themselves and it starts to list all the things that they're boasting in. What's one thing that they were taking pride in? Yeah, we're, we're pretty high up here. Who can attack our fortresses, our cities? Actually, the, the elevation of Edom got to around 7,000 feet. Uh, they're, they're generally about 5,000 feet above sea level, and there are cliffs around their cities. So you can imagine they would have been a hard nation to oppose. You couldn't just attack their fortified cities very easily. Um, so, yeah, they're proud in their, their secure position. So, would you say there are any other nations equally guilty of this sin? Yeah, we're, we're secure. In fact, isn't, isn't that the way nations often operate is if we can have a secure position, you know, make sure our borders are covered, make sure there's no, you know, missiles 90 miles off our border, make sure that there's no opposing nations securing lands next to our lands, then we'll be secure. Yeah. Yeah, I have to refresh my memory exactly which place it would lie under, but... Um, places like that. Yeah, there's an oppressive, the oppressive remains like there where you see it carved in the, the deep ravine, yep. I don't know if their fortresses were all like that, but you, you can picture mesas, high up places, cliffs, where you, you basically have the advantage. So yeah, all nations are guilty of this. Whenever a nation grows in pride, it becomes powerful and populated by those who oppose God. Pride just takes over. You know, what nation in history has remained humble when it was ruling as an empire over other nations? Uh, so quickly, pride takes hold of, you know, think of even King David. What was one of David's greatest sins? Right away we think of Bathsheba, but actually, remember how many people died when he got proud and counted his, hunt, his uh, army and the strength of his own size of his nation? So, yeah, our, our pride leads to our downfall. And then David stayed home, it said, when the kings go off for war. Ah, they can handle it. I'm powerful enough. Pride also led to the Bathsheba downfall. So Edom has pride in its strategic position, its fortresses. You know, what does God say? Think of, you know what God says in Psalm 139. The psalmist says, where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heights, you are there. To the depths, you are there. You know, you can't flee from God. Yeah, our nation has been blessed. We certainly have a strategic position and that we don't have that many neighboring nations, right? We're not like many nations in Europe or other places in Asia where they have borders where they constantly have to fret over their neighbors. We're pretty well secluded with oceans on each side and friendly nations to the south and north. All right. Besides its strategic location, what else could they take pride in? So we've got to read now verses 5 and 6. Reader for that. Okay. If thieves came to you, if marauders by night, how ravaged you would be. Wouldn't they steal only what they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, wouldn't they leave some grapes? How Esau will be pillaged, his hidden treasures searched out. Yeah, it's hidden treasures searched out. They'll steal only as much as they want. How much are they going to take when they come after you? So what, what else were they taking pride in? Money, wealth, possessions, yeah. Uh, Edom was pretty rich with copper mines, from what we can determine. And if you look at their, their position, they're on a trade route called the King's Highway. That's where Israel wanted to travel. 
when they were coming out of Egypt. So it connected Africa, Arabia, India. Basically, if you were playing the board game Risk, Edom would have been a pretty good position to have on the board. And with their copper and their trade, they were not poor, but they took pride in their great wealth. But they are landbound, aren't they? Yeah, they are landbound. They're right on the edge there of what we call the Fertile Crescent, so they will get seasonal rains where they're located. But if they have all these goods, they still have to trade with people. Either they're trading toward the east or the west um, through Israel right. to get to the water. Right, and, but water is what we often are familiar with, especially in the, the pioneers in America, but uh, you had Egypt was trading all the way to Iraq where mm -hmm. there weren't direct streams of water. Well, so you got a wealthy nation of Egypt, you got the wealthy nation of Babylon, Assyrians before that, and there were trade, and also just, regardless of the water, if there's copper, you're gonna wanna go where the copper is. Kind of like Arizona, I suppose, right? So we got copper, we, we can take pride in our, our wealth, but only for so long. Yeah, how might nations be tempted to take pride in their wealth as well. What you said? I'm sorry. <laughs> Think about nations today. Do nations today take pride in wealth? Right? We'll get to that, yeah. So if you got wealth, that's another security. Uh, the ancient city of Carthage was extremely wealthy, the Carthaginians and they were able to, the Phoenicians, they were able to actually hire armies out because they, they didn't fight, they didn't know how to fight. And when Carthage was attacked historically, the people would cower in the city and say, where are our mercenaries? But they're not here in time. Their wealth basically paid for soldiers and armies, which actually became part of the downfall of the Phoenicians, despite their great wealth. But here Edom is told, hey, when, they, when you're plundered, it's all gonna go, it's gonna disappear. And think about history, it's not just the Phoenicians. Civilization after civilization rises to great wealth and then it <coughs> crashes, comes down. What about us, right? Yep, As thing. individuals, we might pride ourselves in the security of our wealth, our investments, our portfolios, and suddenly that can disappear. All right, we got another security that's gonna fail, verse seven. So, so far we got their position, their wealth, Who's going to read verse 7? All your allies okay. will force you to the border. Your friend will deceive and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you will not detect it. Thanks. So what's another thing they were taking security or pride in? Allies. Yeah, they're allies. Our friends. But what does Obadiah say is going to happen with their so-called allies? They're going to betray you, they're going to deceive you and turn their backs on you and they're going to set a trap and you're not going to expect it. So a nation could also pride itself and we're allied with all these other powerful nations. Therefore, we are the most powerful, I don't know, what do you call that? You have people that help you. That's Con what's happening in the United States. We have to reassure our allies that we will be there for them. Right. So because we can't fight the world by ourselves and people think we Right, that's another point to take for granted is your allies can be taken for granted. Mm -hmm. Yep. Okay, um, Lenore, you want to read verse 8 for us? <laughs> In that day, declares the Lord, will I not destroy the wise men of Edom, 
men of understanding in the mountains of Esau. Okay, so we got their position, their wealth, their allies. What else do they take pride in? Their understanding and wisdom. Yeah, any nation that gets powerful enough, too, will, will have time to sit back, relax, study a little bit, steal the advancements of the conquered nations, develop your own greatest wisdom and teaching and understanding and technology. So, yeah, their, their pride is in their wisdom. Uh, the Edomites thought, you know, all these other foolish nations around us, they don't stand a chance. We're the, we're the enlightened ones. We are men of understanding. Apparently, Edom was known for its wisdom, which sounds kind of striking when you think about the man Esau, um, in contrast to Jacob. But without blessing of wise rulers, how strong can a nation really be, right? You've got to have wisdom, but your trust can be misplaced. Mm -hmm. So wise rulers definitely are something to pray for, but don't make that where you throw all your chips and say, that, that's why we're secure, because we we've got wisdom in this nation. What other ways that this can be both a blessing and a pitfall to have wisdom? To not use it wisely or to ignore it. Like the Holy Spirit will lead you or talk to you about right. something and you go, Ow. Right. You go left instead of right. Think of, <laughs> think of how we do have wisdom to study science and we have wisdom to study history, but how do we use it? Not wisely. We use it to go against God and say, well, I know, you know this, this narrative of evolution must make sense. I'm going to use my wisdom to, to create an idea uh, to remove God. Or I have wisdom that understands the human DNA and the structure of how humans function. My, in my wisdom, I'm going to defy God regarding marriage and gender and whatever it might be. Wisdom is a blessing, but it can also be a great pitfall. Kind of ties with the, the sermon message, right? Jesus says, I, I praise you, Father, because you've hidden these things from the learned and the wise. If you and your wisdom don't thank God for that wisdom and use it to his glory, it will be a, a pitfall and a misplaced source of strength. That's like the scientists they brought in uh, to create the atom bomb and the scientists they brought in uh, after the fall of Germany. They wanted their knowledge yeah. about the science of creating destructive things. And now everyone's living in fear. Right. That yep. made us a great nation because we had the people, the bomb, everything, so that therefore our allies were scared and the people who are enemies were scared. But now everybody's got it. So right. <laughs> nuclear weapons, bombs, you it, know. it soon turns on your own head. It's like Jesus right. says, if you live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. I think nuclear weapons are a, a nationwide example of that. If you're going to live by nuclear weapons, you might expect to die by them. Yeah, somebody's always stealing your information. You're actually, you're getting to a technology, right? Mm -hmm. Check out verse 9. Your warriors, Temen, will be terrified, so city and Edom. Everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut down in the slaughter. So they took pride in their fighters. Um, can a nation do that today? Yeah. I, I guess we might call it today more technology, because... You know, the technology that their warriors had, chariots and spears and, you know, the, the weapons made out of metals. But today that technology has advanced and we might say, I'm going to take pride in my fighters, my warriors, my military might. But God says, nope, they too will fall. So let's read why Edom is being punished. It's not just because of their pride. Their pride is going to be their downfall and their, their thinking, their, they have their strategic position, their wealth. Uh, they've got their, their great treasures, their... Um, allies, they've got their wisdom, they've got their warriors. Why are they being punished? This is kind of striking. Verse 10 
Actually, why don't we read? Okay, verse 10. Because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you'll be covered with shame. You'll be destroyed forever. So why is Edom being punished? From the sins of Esau and Jacob, for Esau killing Jacob. So okay. So we got your brother Jacob. Certainly you, you're right that there is violence the man Esau did against Jacob. But we're, we're actually speaking of the nations here. We're going to use them as kind of a metaphor for the entire people. Kind of like we're familiar with that, right? The way that Israel refers to the nation of Israel, not Jacob himself. So here we got, yeah. And you're definitely right, Kitty. It started that way, but it never stopped. Entire nations now. So because of the violence against your brother Jacob, meaning against the people of Judah in particular. All right, so let's hear what they did. Verse 11. On the day you stood aloof while the strangers carried off his wealth, foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem. You were like one of them. You should not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. So we know the history of the relationship, tension between Esau's descendants and Israel. Um, Esau, if you recall, married unbelieving wives. That was really part of his downfall. But with his unbelieving wives, generation after generation, the man who despised his birthright and the promise of the Messiah, his descendants were godless. They disregarded the messianic promise. So what did they do? They fought against the people of Judah, even though they were brother nations, so to speak. Esau's descendants were just like Esau. So I mentioned in Numbers 20, they didn't let Israel pass through on the Exodus. They stopped them on the way. They fought against King Saul. They fought against King David. David broke their power and started exacting tribute from them. But then when Solomon fought, they were squashed by Solomon. Finally, we read in 2 Kings 8, the Edomites became independent again in 846. That's why I put the date at 845. After they had crushed and worked against Israel, suddenly, when your enemies attacked, what do you like to do? What, what are you tempted to do? Fight back. And if, if you see your enemy stumble and fall, what do you want to do? Celebrate. Yes, yeah. celebrate or kick them when they're down, right? Yeah. yeah, this is, how did Edom respond to Israel when Israel was suffering under attack? Yeah, we have a, if you read in 2 Kings 8, Israel, or Judah rather, was invaded by Philistines and Arabs in the year 845. That's why people date this about that time. And what did Edom do as the Arabs and Philistines were attacking them? Yeah, not just, not just rejoiced, they actually said, let's go, let's plunder them. Now that they're down, let's take their stuff, um, the, the cast lots for Jerusalem. You are like one of them. And the, the word here, gloat. You should not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune. So how does the attitude of pride display itself? When Israel is being attacked, you got malice, greed, more wealth, arrogance. They basically acted like a bunch of hyenas to their brother nation, right? Of course, we never do that when people that we don't like are suffering, do we? Yeah, we are often, at least, maybe not, 
plundering or joining in the plunder, but maybe sometimes we're, we're willing to turn a blind eye to people that have given us trouble, right? If they're suffering. Just like when they're rioting, uh, one force is fighting for a particular thing, but it's gotten so out of hand that here come the, the looters right. taking everything. Or when there's an emergency, a crisis, that the uh, businesses charge more. Gas gouging, electrical gouging. Right. You know, yeah, you see communities being fair, communities you know? being torn apart as one person in a community takes advantage of another and says, you don't deserve it. You're suffering, so I'm going to take full advantage of your suffering now. That's right. Yep. Now we get to Independence Day. So the day of the Lord, a day of retribution and restoration. So I didn't read verse 13 and 14 yet, so I'm going to read that. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor gloat over them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. <coughs> so you have horrible things happening where they're basically killing pregnant women, ripping their babies out. They're slaughtering the innocent children. They're taking people hostage. They're taking their possessions. Just the ancient world was awful. And you still see stuff like that taking place in wars today. Yes. It doesn't always make the frontline news, but there's raping, there's pillaging, there's soldiers who are abusing the people that they're conquering. Yes. Basically, the, the way that it's presented here is <coughs> merciless, merciless attacks. So now we get to verse 15. The day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return on your own head. So how do you understand that phrase, the day of the Lord? The day of the Lord. Judgment. Yeah. The day of the Lord is when God acts to right the wrongs of this world. When God sees all the deeds and measures in the scale what is deserved because of those deeds. When God comes with justice... Um, Malachi describes the day of the Lord as a great and glorious day, if you look at Malachi 4, when the wicked will be burnt, and there'll be nothing but ashes under the sole of the feet of the believers he's rescued. The Old Testament, his wrath did the same thing. Right. So, yeah, that's right. So Jerry says the wrath of God does that, not just on Judgment Day. The day of the Lord is any time God acts in judgment. So the day of the Lord is coming for Edom, and it did. Um, you don't see the nation of Edom anymore. Um, they had a rebellion shortly after the time of Christ where the, the Edomites rebelled against the Romans. They're gone. Nobody speaks of the Edomites today. As a people, they've been judged by God and he used another wicked nation to crush them. But the day of the Lord is also, like you guys said, judgment, judgment day. And how do you know this one must be referring ultimately to judgment day? Yeah. So, like I said, this is not propaganda just for, you know, the people of God. This is, this is something for all nations. And this is a message meant to go out. Remember the verse 1? An envoy sent to the nations. What you see taking place with Edom and Israel is only a foreshadow, a sampling of how God responds when he comes in judgment. So, yeah, the, the day of the Lord, when God will act, Obadiah refers to a physical judgment and a final judgment on the last day. 
Yeah, and 15, like we said, all nations under discussion, right? Mm -hmm. Edom is going to be symbolic, not just in Obadiah, but across God's prophets, Edom will be used as a symbolic picture for those who reject the Lord. Like Esau and his descendants, so will be like all who reject the Lord. Um, here we get to verse 16. Just as you drink on my holy hill, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink and be as if they had never been. Wait, drinking? What is meant by drink there? Taking and taking? Kind of, yeah. It's really, a, it's a play on words. So drink is being used here in two different ways. They drunk up, you know, the, the produce and the, the wine of the people they conquered, but now they're going to drink up something terrible. Yes. So it's a play on words when it comes to drink. Um, let's turn to Jeremiah 25, 27 to 29. Someone have that that can read that for our group? So just to see how these words are used metaphorically when you see, what does it mean? Edom's going to end up drinking and drinking, and that, that will mean they've never. It'll be like they've never been. Is that twenty-five, fifteen? Uh, Jeremiah twenty-five, verse twenty-seven to twenty-nine. You got it. Mm-hmm. Yes. Then tell them this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says: Drink, get drunk, and vomit and fall to rise no more because of the sword I will send among you. But if they refuse to take the cup from your hand and drink, tell them, this is what the Lord Almighty says. You must drink. See, I am beginning to bring disaster on the city that bears my name. And will you indeed go unpolished? And will you indeed go unpunished? You will not go unpunished, for I am calling down a sword upon all who live on the earth, declares the Lord Almighty. Yeah, we'll pause, stop there then. Thank you. So does that sound like a good kind of drinking? No. Doesn't, does it? No. You will drink, God says, and he's threatening them that they'll drink. And they're going to drink a cup of judgment as their blood is spilled and judgment comes. And then just as Obadiah does, he's, he opens it up to all nations there. Kind of a terrifying thought that God is going to cause a people to drink the sword of judgment, spill their blood, and his vengeance will be poured out. So we've got to read now verse 17. We've been talking about Edom. Now, in contrast to Edom... But, so here's the big turnaround. We've got judgment and decrying and woes up to this point. But on Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy. And Jacob will possess its inheritance. <clears throat> so how do you understand the place that Obadiah puts opposite Edom? He, he contrasts Edom with Mount Zion. If, if Edom is the enemies of God, mm-hmm. Mount Zion would be the opposite, right? right, right. God's people. In, in the Old Testament days, yes, they were the ones who held the word. Not everybody was a believer, but the, the faithful remnant that had the word, that was the place they looked to for God's name uh, on Jerusalem and the, the place where they worshipped. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12 says, You are looking forward to the heavenly Jerusalem. Talking about the church. Uh, what we find pictured 
in ancient Israel is ultimately fulfilled in what Christ calls the, the kingdom of God. All right, and it will be holy. There'll be deliverance. Quite the opposite. Uh, verse 18, Jacob will be a fire and Joseph a flame. Esau will be stubble and they will set him on fire and destroy him. There will be no survivors from Esau. No survivors? Do you think that literally happened? Yes, yes. pretty much. Yeah. Uh, first of all, the Edomites were displaced by the Arabs in 435. But ultimately, like I mentioned, the Emperor Titus attacked them and they disappeared. So the nation itself, physically this was fulfilled for them. But that's only a picture of what God talks about with the, the great day of the Lord for all nations. How are we to understand the restoration of Israel? We've got to read verses 19 and 20. People from the Negev, that's the land of Edom, will occupy the mountains of Esau. People from the foothills will possess the land of the Philistines. They will occupy the fields of Ephraim and Samaria, and Benjamin will possess Gilead. So there's going to be a, a repossession that people that are scattered about will take hold in a possession of a land. Did that literally happen? Yep. When could you say that happened? You've got a lot of times actually that you see pictures of that almost happening, like the, the Maccabean revolt. Um, so before the Romans came onto the scene after the people of Israel through the Maccabees, they, they got a brief window of independence. Yay, we're an independent nation. And then along come the Romans. The Romans are in charge. Herod is appointed as, you know, he's, Herod is actually an Edomite. And he's part Edomite, part Israel, and he's placed his king over them. So it didn't last. The physical restoration didn't last. You got Zionism started in 1948, you know, giving the, the people of Israel their land back as a nation. So that sort of happened, but do they seem like they've really possessed it, like it's really secure? It's not do they have Mount Zion as, as their possession? No. One second before you pass that, but you know they they gave them the land in 1948. Yeah. My question is, if they had been charitable when they took the land to make a nation, right? Instead of being cruel to the people who they uh, took the land from, do you think they would now have peace? Yeah, that's a pretty big if because of our sinful hearts, right? Yeah. But so. Peace can't happen on the earth. Jesus, like we saw last Sunday, don't think I came to bring peace. So whether it was because of their own sinful nature and their, their arguing, or even if, because there are scattered Christians among them, mm -hmm. working through that, um, peace is not possible in this life, in this world. Yeah. We could read a, the restoration that Scripture talks about. This is a, a restoration of a restoring of the land. Uh, verse 20, the company of Israelites, exiles who are in Canaan, will possess the land as far as Zarephath. The exiles from Jerusalem who are in Sherephad will possess the towns of the Negev. So to the north, to the south, they're going to possess the land. The church, if that is Mount Zion, what land does it possess? Jerusalem. Can't be the physical city. Not yet. This is talking about the day of the Lord, right? So if this is all nations, this is judgment day, then, yes, we will possess this world, right? Jesus says the meek will inherit the earth. 
He's talking about believers taking possession of what no longer will be a conflict between believers and unbelievers, but the world given back to God's people. Now, this is a spiritual deliverance. If you look at Revelation 21, you'll see that picture. Look at Amos chapter 9 when he talks about the people of Israel being restored and given back what was promised. Um, is this, if this is just a physical restoration, you're not putting Christ and the Messiah in the universal picture of what he does with his church. You're limiting it to one nation and you're missing what God had prophesied, a message for all nations, a day of the Lord for all nations. And the psalmist who says, this one too will be counted among Israel. Or when Isaiah says, what's happening Israel? Your gates are being so full that you don't even know where to keep everybody. Jerusalem will expand and grow. And Jesus says you will go out from Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth. Right, we're marching forward to receive what God gave us but was lost. Actually, it'll be better because the devil will be forever gone. Look at verse 21, the closing. Deliverers will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. So in what tone does this prophecy end? The Lord is still in control. Yeah, the kingdom will be the Lord's. Not Israel's, not you know, some physical nation. It's going to be the kingdom of God. And if you're living in Esau, in the mountains of Esau and Edom, there's going to be deliverers on Zion. People who share and proclaim deliverance in God's name. A message of repentance. You know, look at what Paul says in Ephesians. Those who were once not a people, now the people of God. Or those of you that are coming to our midweek Isaiah study, this just misses perfectly with what we studied. We studied Isaiah 42, 7 to 8. Let's turn back there. So Isaiah 42, we have our, our midweek Bible study just finished chapter 42, 1 to 8, or 1 to 9. So for the sake of the whole group, I don't want to just brush past it. Let's read that. Isaiah 42, as we look at the restoration that God's promising here, <coughs> 7 and 8. I, the Lord have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. He's talking to the Messiah. I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. To open the eyes that are blind, free captives from prison, to release from dungeon those who sit in darkness. And you can even look at verse 4. In his teaching, the islands, that's the distant nations, will put their hope. It always was this. Not just limited to Israel. It was for all nations to put their hope in the Lord. And that Israel, because it has the Holy One of Israel, the Messiah, would be a light to which the rest of the world would find the light of the world who became a covenant, a deliverer, our peace. Second uh, Peter 3.9 is another good place to turn here. So Peter closes his second letter talking about what we find here. We're going to read 2 Peter 3, verse 9. I'll take a read if we got someone, otherwise I can read it. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Yeah. And actually, 
since we're talking about God's waiting, he's patient with this world, I think verse 10 fits as well because it's the day of the Lord, right? So can you read verse 10? But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Thanks. So the day of the Lord is, as Peter says, a day of judgment. And if I could have you just do verse 13 as well. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. Yeah. So as we let Isaiah, Peter, the Apostle Paul all speak, we can understand what Obadiah is getting at. What is this kingdom belonging to the Lord that Obadiah concludes on? Righteousness dwells. There is no more curse. There's no more evil. You're talking about the people, Esau, or believers? Yeah, so, yeah, there's a private judgment day that's already taken place at the moment of death. But there's going to be what's called the day of the Lord when, as Daniel says, multitudes who sleep in the dust will rise, and some to everlasting life, others to everlasting shame and contempt. So there's going to be a public judgment after the resurrection. And that's really what Peter's talking about, that judgment when everything is destroyed that's what Obadiah talks about. Deliverers on Mount Zion, the kingdom will be the Lord's. But their public judgment won't be different from the Right, the, the verdict won't change. Yeah, now is, now is our time of grace. The verdict will not be altered. Yeah, you can look at um, consistently. This, this verse speaks about the kingdom of the Lord's. Let's close this section by looking at Revelation eleven fifteen. So comparing scripture here, Revelation 11.15 echoes some thoughts here from the end of Obadiah. I just love this picture because Revelation is a, a replay of the day of the Lord from different angles. As you read through Revelation, it's kind of like a football game where he's showing you, okay, here's how the play went. Let's take a look at that in slow motion from another angle. Here's how the play went. And every time it plays maybe the reel a little bit further or shows something a little bit behind, but it's basically the same thing. So let's read what we find in Revelation 11:15 that connects with Obadiah. Someone want to read that for the group? The seventh angel sounded his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven which said, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and will reign forever and ever. Yeah, so kind of what you're going to Sherry, we're going to be those voices in heaven if God doesn't come before we die. We're going to be those loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever. You mean those who are passed away before Christ comes to earth, right? Right. Basically, if it comes down to the title of this study, when is Independence Day for the people of God? The, the day of the Lord. Judgment day. You'll hear the trumpet sound. You'll see the Lord come in all of his glory. And he'll say, take your inheritance, you who are blessed by my Father, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of this world. And notice it's an inheritance. It's not something we earned. 
It's only by putting your hope in the Lord. And what, I, what Obadiah closes with here will be fulfilled. Uh, that we will take possession of the new heavens, as Peter calls it, the new earth. And the kingdom will be the Lord's. So that's our Independence Day. Obviously, it already has been decreed in Scripture. When Jesus sealed with his blood on the cross, our, the payment has been made. The victory has been won. We are waiting for that day of celebration. Um, further questions to consider, since we have a little bit of time here. Does God decide who will rule a nation on earth? Yes. Yeah. He sets up kings and deposes them. Um, and you can read through what Paul says in Romans 13. If an authority exists, they have been established by God. And that's why he says you should submit to every governing authority. Only unless they tell you to go against the word of God, you should submit. How about this statement? God controls nations that go to war so that the winner can always say, we have God on our side. How about that one? So that's what every army says, right? God is on our side. Yeah, but it depends on the army. Which which side, okay, yeah, which, which God? So if they're saying God is on our side, is it the one true God? But even then, if, what if there are two nations that are warring and most of the people are, consider themselves Christian in some sort of way? You take Ukraine and Russia and Ukraine proclaim... Right. Eastern Orthodox, they're Christians. And both sides are fighting what they consider a Christian war and God is on their side. You know what? I think in the end, the winner can't really say God was on our side. They do have to say, though, God established an authority. Really, the big point from Odai is don't look down on the loser. Every kingdom will fall in the end. Don't celebrate when your enemy is down in the ground and suffering. Because God's not on your side if you're in pride trampling over those who you oppose. So God is in control, I think, is a better way to phrase it, right? And God will, yes, even if the the viewed by the majority, the wicked side wins, God will not allow them to win on the day of the Lord. And if the side gloats over another side and causes them to suffer, God is still in control. And even if that side that's in authority says God is on our side, the kingdom still is the Lord's, not theirs. Right. When you, when you read through this, I think that's the intent for all the nations to think, to not get carried away in your pride, to stay in humility, but also comfort, right? Yeah. I think it happened after World War II because the United States were helping the defeated country, Germany and Japan, helped rebuild them because in World War I, they just took everything and taxed right. them. And that led to problems. They didn't help them. They started another war. Right. Or similarities with the reparations in the Civil War. We didn't demand mm -hmm. the South pay for things. And we were able to not fight another war because of that. Yeah. It was able to, to take the next step. Well, yeah, pride in the way you respond to your enemy, definitely. Leave it in God's hand and display the same what Peter says. The great patience wanting everyone to come to repentance. So what do you think? Um, we probably mentioned it, right? We take pride in probably our technologies as our wisdom, maybe some of our allies, but we've got to re remember the Lord and the kingdom is his. And the ultimate thing to rejoice in isn't that we have the greatest technology, but we have the greatest God and his promises. Uh, Edom's pride displayed itself in horrible acts towards Israel. Do you think times have changed and people are more civil today? 
Nothing has changed. It's just easier for people actually to show it today because they have cell phones and other things to record it, but it's also harder for you to believe it when it's not shown. Uh, Obadiah's book closes with a reminder that God's church will work to spread the kingdom. It talks about deliverers, and it talks about uh, there'll be deliverance on Mount Zion. How do you see this being fulfilled today in your church, the church, and your personal life? Deliverers going up on Mount Zion. It's plural. Yeah. Wherever the church has missionaries, Obadiah is right now being fulfilled. Right. There's deliverers. The day of the Lord comes right now as God fulfills his judgment, as he brings people into his kingdom, and it leads up to that great and glorious day of the Lord. And right now, in those same countries, even though they're all foreign apart, South Syria, Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan, Christians are there. There are. Trying to bring the word and trying to stop the continual play that Esau among them. Right. The, the only way the conflict is resolved is peace through Christ and mm -hmm. knowing peace with God and what our God has in store who will set to right every wrong. So, yeah, I, I'm hoping, praying that today you are able to take away both the, the warnings as we look at what happened with Edom mm -hmm. and not just for our nation. Don't say, oh, look at the wicked people in our nation around us. Take it for your own heart and where your source of comfort and hope lies mm -hmm. and to know that we have for ourselves, we will join with every believer. Doesn't matter what nationality, the, the Gentiles across the world will join mm -hmm. in this deliverance as we put our hope in Him. Why don't we close with a prayer regarding that? Lord, we thank you for setting us free, not just free temporarily from those who might try to oppress us, but our battles against flesh and blood, the spiritual forces of evil. You have delivered us through the work and victory of your Son who conquered the devil and crushed him underfoot, who conquered death and the grave and sin and set us free forever. He said, if we are set free, we are free indeed. We, help, we pray that you help us celebrate this freedom today as we know that you promised more to come when all believers will join in that great and glorious day of the Lord, our eternal Independence Day. All because of your grace and working, we praise you. Amen.